Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Steven Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm here today with my co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hey, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. Each week, we bring you our take on things happening in the world from the perspective of two BIPOC parents of transgender kids. It's episode 28, Lisette. And we are going to be interviewing Melanie Willingham Jaggers, the first Black non-binary executive director of GLSEN the Gay, Lesbian, Straight, and Education Network, an organization that seeks to end discrimination, harassment, and bullying of sexual and gender expansive youth. Stephen, I cannot tell you how excited I am that we have Melanie Willingham Jaggers on here talking to us about all things learning, education, and safe spaces for LGBTQIA youth. This conversation is going to be so important. Well, let's go. Welcome, everyone, once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. It has been quite a weekly set. Bring me up to speed on what's been happening in your life, and I'll bring you up to speed on what's been happening in mine. Okay. Well, on Monday, we attended a TDOR event uh, that Kindred Connections and Galeria Mitotera put on. It was a beautiful evening with community and Daniel as always like just thrived being around everyone and they had you know healers to facilitate like a quiet healing moment after the names were stated a beautiful altar and then like artwork and music and presenters and it was just beautiful and let's see, we had a screening of the dads. So a lot of the families from the parent group that I run came and community members came friends and we all watched the dads and everyone was excited. I forgot to take photos as usual. <laughs> and yeah, it was just great. And everyone was really moved by the film. And Jenny Set Gutierrez, who's been on our podcast, was here. And then, you know, I always tease her that she's my mentor, even though she hasn't agreed. <laughs> so we we chopped it up on things that I wanted to talk about, questions I had. And what else? Let me see. My sister is due on December 2nd. So wow, her second baby is coming. That's exciting. Jose did another coach event where he was like painting on different coach items. So I had him make a pair of or paint on a pair of loafers that say protect trans kids. Super cute. I saw those. They are super cute. Were those yours? Yeah, I bought them. And then he painted on them. Super duper cute. I can't wait to see them in real life. They're my capital shoes. Our next posh event. Right? Or to go like knock on doors and tell elected officials to act right. Tell me about you. What's going on with you? Well, as you know, The Dads was released last week on Netflix. Huge, huge shout out to D. Wade, who posted to his 20 million Instagram followers that the movie was live. Everybody who's watched it has been just gushing over it. The one criticism, if there is one, is that it was too short, that they want to see the full-length feature, that they were just so sad that it was over. But it really did open to rave reviews, and I'm so, like, humbled by that response. Yeah, for sure. That's what I keep being told, too, is, like, they wish that there was more. Yes, so we'll see. Hopefully Netflix is paying attention to all those social media comments and is like, hey, you know what? D-Wade and Lucina, we're going to greenlight another project. So let's go. Yeah. I did a T-Door event 
with Familia TQLM, with the Jose Trujillo family, <laughs> and, the, and the Chikumbas. Uh, Hobbs and I joined you, Daniel, and Jose to talk about the film, talk about our advocacy, and it was just a really, really nice event. Um, and unfortunately, I had to drop off halfway because I was double booked. Because I had another event, an IG Live, with Tori mm -hmm. Cooper, who was hosting a trans talk with Dr. Keisha Michaels, Mama Clara, who is the parent of a trans youth who was killed, and myself, where, once again, we talked about what it was like parenting and raising gender-expansive youth in this country. It was another really rousing conversation. I feel mm -hmm. like these types of conversations, the more we have them, the more people can appreciate what it is to be parents of gender expansive children and, and what the experiences of gender expansive people are such that they're more empathetic to, to them in society. Yeah. What else? Oh, so <laughs> as part of the, I guess, the ramp up to the release of the dads, we did a whole bunch of press and one press outlet in particular that I spoke to was People Magazine. And they did this article. Lisa, I didn't even realize that I had said the things that I had said to this reporter because yeah. I just spilled all the tea in terms of what my life was like, raising Hobbes, how my family felt, how my mother felt. And it was just literally, I read the article and I was like, ooh, did I did I see did I see all that? But it was one of those articles. It was clearly yeah, they cathartic. loved the vulnerability. Yeah, it was clearly cathartic, and I was just, I'm, I'm happy that we, the collective we, are being given this opportunity to kind of share our thoughts nationally. I think so much of what we do is done at a local or hyper local level that it's not really felt outside of our immediate spheres of influence, and so yeah. having the Netflix movie having this national press around it, I think is really helping to get the message out there about the importance of being aware and supportive of gender expansive people. So it's been a really, it's been a really busy week, a hectic week. Like I can't believe the transgender awareness week has already come and gone and we're just like on to the next, but my, my heart was full last week. I'm so glad. Child, we could keep talking, but there's so much more show. So let's put a pin in this and get to today's topic. Let's do it. So as I said, last week was Transgender Awareness Week, which is observed every November 13th through 19th, which is a one-week celebration leading up to the Transgender Day of Remembrance, TDOR, which memorializes victims of transphobic violence. This year's TDOR acknowledged the deaths of at least 33 transgender or non-binary victims of violence, and I want us to just take a moment of silence to honor them. Thank you for holding that space for us, Stephen. It's such an important thing that we honor the lives of those lost. Absolutely. Um, on to something less sober and kind of celebratory is Raquel Willis dropped her memoir this week, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, which is now available wherever you buy books. And I ordered the hardcover, which I already got. 
And I also ordered the audiobook, which hasn't been released yet, but I'm super excited to get started. I am so looking forward to this book. I ordered it. I haven't received it. But having met Raquel and, and worked with her on Transprom and we did like a speaking engagement in the city. She is just one of those powerhouses. She's a force to be reckoned yeah. with. And I loved The Risk It Takes to Bloom. That title, I think, says everything. So I'm really, really looking forward to getting the book and reading it. And, you know, we're going to have to do like a, a book club assessment of the book after we both had an opportunity to read it. Now. Oh, my gosh, we have to. I'm going to tell you. I have to let you know, it's it's in a queue. I'm still reading The Histories of the Transgender Child. Oh my goodness, Lisa, it's not a novel. It's not a story. It's not fictional. It's like heavy, heavy, like History. medical histories. It's a slog. Like, I'm going to be honest, but it's an important book to read. And so yeah. I'm just working through it, but it's not like a, it's not an easy read by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm gonna let you know when I get through this, because that's not getting, I can't pick up another book. That's my rule. I can't pick up another book until I put the book that I'm currently reading down, meaning I finished it. So we'll get to Raquel's book, but I am looking forward to it. That's a good rule. I will, I can multitask books. I think this one makes it a little bit easier for me. Cause then I can like, oh, okay, I'm gonna take a break from this one. And then, you know. Yeah, that context switching, I don't have that skill because uh, uh, then I don't remember where I was in the previous book. So I yeah. got to just, I just got to work through it. But good for you. Good for you. You know, bragger. Anywho, <laughs> the International Cricket Council, the ICC, has banned transgender women from playing the sport. The rulemaking body said that any male to female participants who have been through any form of male puberty will not be allowed to partake in international women's cricket. And the problem with that, among many of the problems with that, is they don't define what having partaken in male puberty even means, because there is no specific criteria around it. And so participants who want to engage in cricket under the ICC are still left in a gray area with respect to what they can or cannot do. That's right, Stephen. And one of the Canadian players, Danielle McGahey, you know, I'm bad with names, uh, effectively said that with a heavy heart that this is the end of her career. And so it's just really frustrating that this ban even adheres to and frankly bans women who have already undergone gender affirming care. So it's just transphobic and unnecessary. I watched a show queer sports that talked to five transgender female athletes, actually four transgender female athletes and a transgender male athlete. And one of the biggest complaints that they had is that these rulemaking bodies are making rules without consulting transgender people. It's a bunch of cisgender people making rules without knowing experientially what it is that transgender people are going through. And the biggest issue that they all had is that they're not participating in sports to take anything away from other people. They're participating in sports for all of the attributes and values that competitive sports offers all athletes, irrespective of how they identify. And that's something I think bodies like the ICC continue to miss. You're going to have to tell me where to find this. I'm on IMDb trying to figure out where to stream it. I, I haven't seen this yet. I will find it. It, it, it isn't a movie. It is a show so i will send you the link but it was called queer sports and i just watched it uh andrea yearwood was one of the athletes the canadian cyclist 
who won the championship, but was then the reason for trans women being banned from international cycling was another one of them. So it was just a really important show. And I will definitely send you that link so that you can watch it yourself. On Friday, November 17th, Netflix also released the film Rustin about Bayard Rustin, the advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., who dedicated his life to the quest of racial equality, human rights, and worldwide democracy. However, as an openly gay Black man, he was all but erased from the civil rights movement that he helped build. Now, I don't know about you, Lisette, but when I watched that film, I literally was brought to tears at the end because this man, this storied man, this man who was almost single-handedly responsible for passive resistance, the nonviolent protest that marked Martin Luther King's ascendancy, was the architect of these movements and is the reason that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were even passed because of the political pressure that the movements that he marshaled brought to bear on our president, on Congress, on the the halls of justice. He's a hero in so many ways. I mean, I don't know if you listen to the podcast Making Gay History, but there's an episode where they speak with his husband and it's just like all the insights are just so deeply moving about his commitment to the movement and his clear vision. And the fact that he just existed without shame in a time when we've been told by historians that all people lived with shame and no, he was living freely and creatively and thinking about what freedom looks like and living in a way, in a manner that like matched his values. It's just, it's such a beautiful film. I'm glad he's finally getting recognized for the hero that he is. A lot of people may not know who Bayard Rustin is, and that's no fault of their own. We have an education system in this country that has been systematically attempting to erase the contributions of Black and Brown people, of women, Indigenous people from the history books. And we could go on and on about this all day, but we have a guest who can really speak to the importance of education to liberation. So rather than flap our gums about today's topics, how about we get to our guest? Let's do it. Let's bring them in. With us today is Glisten's Executive Director, Melanie Willingham Jaggers, the first Black non-binary leader in the organization's history. Their vision for the next chapter of Glisten's work is rooted in the belief that education can and should be an experience that is safe, affirming, and liberating. Before joining Glisten in 2019 as Deputy Executive Director, Melanie served as the Program Associate Director of the Worker Institute at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Melanie earned their BA in Politics, Peace, and Justice Studies and Philosophy from the University of San Francisco and their MA in Applied Theater from the CUNY School of Professional Studies. From 2016 to 2019, they worked for the Audre Lorde Project, a community organizing center for lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender non-conforming people of color communities. A champion for equality, tirelessly working towards a more just and inclusive world for all, please welcome Melanie Willingham Jaggers to our show. Welcome to our show, Melanie. Yay, thanks for having me, y'all. Okay, Melanie, you were named one of Out Magazine's 2023 Out 100, 
which designated you one of the most significant artists, disruptors, educators, groundbreakers, innovators, and storytellers helping to make the world a better place for the LGBTQ plus community. Now, I know that you're not in this work for accolades, but how does it feel to be acknowledged for your work? Yeah, well, um, it's kind of weird, y'all. I got to be honest with you. Like we, you know, I've been doing this work since I was 17 years old, uh, working with young people, working to make the world better for young people, uh, first as a young person myself, and now to be a former young person um, getting uh, getting a pat on the back, I think was really cool. Um, and mostly what's cool uh, is being included on a list of people who I'm in the arena with um, as we work to change the world for our kids. It's a really incredible list. It must have felt like such an honor. In a room and like, you know, like, oh my gosh, they're here. But I was like, wait a second, I'm here too. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that part of the game is like, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. That's amazing. So in your bio, we learned that you served as board chair for the Audre Lorde Project. What were you most proud of doing during your time there? Yeah, you know, so the Audre Lorde Project, AOP uh, for short, is the oldest community organizing center in New York City for queer people of color, right? Which is cool. Um, and maybe it's it's not so much it's the oldest, but it's like kind of like the long, the one that's still standing that's been around for the longest amount of time. So I guess it is the longest. So not the first, but the longest. Um, and the thing about ALP is that it is consistent, right? It's like, it's our people. Um, it is organizing. It's like picking fights with people who are bigger than us to make the world a little bit better for queer people who live, queer people of color who live in um, in New York City, all five boroughs. Um, and uh, years before I joined the board, my partner was on the board. Years before that, you know, I've got like other folks who are older than me, my same age, who have all come through ALP. And it's um, it's a place I, that remains kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, and I love I love it. And I love the people who are there. You said something just now that I, I kind of wanted to dig in on. Yeah. You said picking a fight with people. And, you know, as a very visible person through your affiliation and leadership of Glisten, you've really become a target for the ultra-right white Christian nationalists that are out here just wreaking havoc in our society. How does this visibility impact you and, and the work that you're trying to do? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think, um, and I think that, you know, I kind of said that uh, lightly, like picking fights with folks who are bigger than us in order to make the world a better place. Um, but I don't take it lightly. And I think that the work uh, of being in, um, the work to create justice, more justice um, in the world for our people um, is not is not work that you take lightly, right? So that's like part one. Part two is like, I'm an Aries. And so, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of up for it. <laughs> um, there's a level of, you know, spunk um, and energy and vigor um, that I get and that those uh, who I, I get and those who I work with get and we get from each other and really being in this work because, you know, at, listen, at the end of the day, it's always, it always has been and it always will be regular people who make history. It is people who get with others who say like, actually, no, we're not going to go for this. Or listen, you might win, but you're not going to, you're going to look like you were in a fight with somebody. Um, and that's going to be us, right? So I really do understand myself as part of a legacy and part of a wide community of folks who are in the arena right now who are saying, hell no, um, to the bullying, to the anti-democratic vision for the future, for the fascist and authoritarian vision for the future of this country. Um, 
and yeah and so we're so i think there's nothing else for us to do right now except for be both in the fight back but also deeply rooted and really insistent on building a compelling and beautiful vision for the future that not only are we fighting against something bad we really are fighting for a beautiful future that we haven't yet gotten to taste or see um but that we're working to make possible i love that i i just love that response yeah shout out to the aries too because i'm an aries when's your birthday april april 7th yeah what about you Fourth. Oh, nice. You're the right. Yeah, we're close. Early April. Okay, April 21st. So I just missed y'all, but we all April babies. So the right month. Listen, big up for us. That's right. That's right. Nobody's perfect, but you close. You close. You close. That's what I love because there's such a distinct difference between Taurus and Aries people. Like it's is different. And you know, I mean, here's the thing about Aries is like you know we we might not be the best, but we will be the first, and you will learn from us and you will iterate and make it better later. So that's what I think I, that's the lesson <laughs> I get from Taurus. It's like, they, y'all have a different way of doing things and it might have been an improvement on how Aries do things, but we gave y'all the idea is, is what we should take credit for. Yeah, we're the inspiration clearly. Okay. <laughs> All right, sorry, I digress. This is near and dear, like Glisten is near and dear. Often because it's youth led programming, parents are not part of the conversation. I know I've talked to you about this, but I know for my child, who officially socially transitioned in fourth grade, but began that journey in like, you know, second, third grade. I really had to teach myself how to navigate the school system. And then through learning, I began uh, being like a parent advocate, sometimes going into meetings with families, advocating for what their youth were going to need when it came to public access and accommodations in the classroom. I'm big on knowing your rights. And so for parents, I've always armed them with like, this is how you're going to navigate school. This is what you need to ask for and do. What are your top three things that you think parents should do when supporting their LGBTQIA youth in the classroom? Well, first of all, I just have to give a shout out to you and all the other parents. Um, who see your children for who they are, who your parent, who your your kid trusts you to tell you fully who they are as they are discovering it themselves. Um, you know, there is no there's no shortcut for that. There's no replacement for that. Um, and I think that what we as a society are really grappling with right now is how do we support children? How do we put supports in front of them? How do we, how do we remove barriers from in front of them? And how do we make sure that every single kid thrives? no matter who they are, no matter what their home situation is, no matter where they live, right? So that's like part one. It's like parents are um, such an important linchpin in the success and health um, and happiness of, of your kids. And so for the parents, you all included, you all first, but then also for the parents who are listening, thank you so much um, for what you're doing. Because I think that in this moment, um, some parents are uh, are are taking the spotlight, and I think um, getting the grabbing the microphone um, and being real loud and real wrong, and trying to not only make sure that their kids know less, learn less about the world than they know, but also that your kids know less and learn less. Um, and how dare they, right? On that um, uh, on that front, that's part one. Uh, part two, I would say, in terms of advocating for your young person in schools, uh, you know, at Glisten, we talk about how schools are the, cor- how education is the cornerstone of democracy, right? I talk about, you all said in my intro, right, that I really do believe 
And we at Glisten are working toward making sure that schools and learning communities are safe, affirming, and liberatory. Because at the end of the day, you know, I come from a school of thought that understands that education as a process brings us closer to our humanity, closer to the humanity of other people, and puts us in a powerful position um, as people in this world to make a difference and to shape this world in the way that we believe it should be. So all this to say that when you are advocating for your kid at school, so many things both can go right at schools and can go wrong. Um, you know, while education is the cornerstone of democracy, we have to also understand that and realize and be honest with ourselves and each other that for many young people, for many queer young people, for many queer young people of color and folks at every single intersection, schools and teachers and administrators fail our kids. They fail to see them. They fail to regard them with respect. They fail to build communities where it, the expectation is respect and inclusion and truth. Right. And so I think, um, you know, the important thing for an important thing for educate for teach for parents to do um, is already what you all are doing. See your kid and believe them when they tell you who they are and then help be their advocate in schools so that the school system, the teachers see them and affirm them for who they are and they meet the needs of the kid as learner, because it doesn't matter kind of what body you walk in to school with, right? It's like the school actually has the obligation, has the has the actual, it's the purpose of this, of this system to support and teach our children. And so when our kids' bodies or identities get in the way of that, then it's the system that's actually failing. And so parents, um, it's so wonderful when you all um, come to the school or right, get involved and, and ensure that the school sees your kid and educates them. Um, for who they are, regardless of who they are, and with respect and for who they are too, right? It's not like forget who they are and this just teach them. It's both teach them, give them supports, but regardless of who they are, but also with respect for who they are. I think that what you're saying is so important. So right now, where I'm sitting, I can see the elementary school across the street from me, and this elementary school has existed for a hundred years. And I think what people forget is that schools really are our community centers. It's where families connect. I'm a firm believer in proximity changing hearts. And so I'm curious to know what you feel the role of GLSEN is in this moment when we're seeing schools under attack. You know, um, John Dewey said, and I know because Bell Hooks told me in her book, uh, Teaching Critical Thinking, um, that democracy is born a, a new every generation and education is its midwife, right? Um, you know, I come from people um, as a black person, as a person whose family on both sides escaped the escaped right the South. Uh, you, we euphemistically call this the Great Migration, right? What this was was my family in Georgia, in Alabama, and Oklahoma leaving our homes, right, our communities with guns pointed at us, right, under the threat of violence, under the cover of night. Um, I come from people, right, who believe in the democratic. Uh, promise of this country. I believe I come from people who have fought for generations, right, to make the promises real, the promises of this country real. And I say fight for because we yet we haven't yet kind of achieved that vision, uh, and that fight continues. And I think that what we're talking about here is not unrelated, right, from that from that fight there. So I think that the the most important thing that Glisten um, can do and is doing 
with schools, with school leaders, um, with, with folks who are in school, both adults and young people, is reminding them of the assignment. The assignment is democracy. The assignment of our education system is care and preparation for the world, right? And when every single young person in this country goes through our education system, they go in whole people, they have to come out whole people. And they have to come out whole people in recognition of the wholeness of everyone around them and the assignment to build um, a more perfect union, right, in this country, right, and to be a global citizen in the ways that, that our world, our country require us to be in this really fraught, but really um, uh, full of opportunity time that we're living in. Um, and so, I, so I'll say again, I think our, I think GLSEN's um, highest, best use right now is reminding people of their assignment, right? Reminding everybody in the school ecosystem what the assignment is. The assignment is care, education, democracy. That's what we do, right? And so we seek to make sure that teachers, that administrators um, that, you know, have what they need in order to ensure that they can create that environment um, for every single, for every single young person. And I think what we also do is work to um, help young people both help them understand the world around them, but also we listen to young people, right? I think it's everyone's job to like give the folks, like give these young people, like the like let's learn the words, right? Let's kind of get a little bit of a lay of the land around what this place we call earth is, what our rules of society are, what our history is, but then let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what it, what it, what you need to succeed in schools. Not only what's wrong, we need to know what's wrong so we can fix it, but beyond that, what is the ideal? What do you need to succeed to thrive? And then we as adults, as parents, as allies of parents, you know, personally, I'm an auntie, um, as educators, right? How do we get information to ensure that we are building um, the conditions for our young people to be successful and to grow into their full selves and their full wholeness? I love that. And I, I love it because you're you're really channeling this kind of grassroots ethos. Like Glisten is an is an established organization, but your expertise and your background, much like that of HRC's president, Kelly Robinson, is grounded in and informed by that grassroots intersectional organizing lens. And I'm I'm curious to know when you became executive director, what did you bring? What new perspectives and idea did you bring to your role as as the executive director to this really storied organization that has helped you find your own space to carve out your own place in it, but also forge a direction that you saw from, again, this grassroots organizational lens was really necessary for the future of the organization? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that there's both a lot of power, it feels like, um, a lot of like built-in legitimacy and credibility and kind of capital, um, but also it, like the, you know, the, the price is high, right? Like you got like, there's this, there's this organization that I would call a legacy organization that came about in a world that's so different in many ways than the one we live in now. And it emerged really from being inspired by young people and their bravery um, and seeing young people be brave in ways that the adults around them, the caring adults around them, particularly in schools, could not be, right? In 1990, it was illegal to be gay in 26, 24 states across the country. 
Um, and, and our founders, of which there are many, right, were like, some of them were gay, some of them were not. Um, and the ones that were, were like, well, listen, I can't be out, but like, what I'm gonna do is make sure this school is safe and affirming for this kid who can be, can be out and I can't. So there's a way in which um, my, my hope, right, is the, is, is both of returning to the roots of who Glisten was when we came about, why we came about, and also really um, a reemergence and a recasting of this legacy organization that lives at the, at the intersection of education, civil rights, youth development, um, and LGBTQ plus justice um, that really brings to bear, right, the experience and whatever wisdom comes from that experience of my connection uh, to communities who have often been pushed out of schools, right? Like I think about myself as a youth worker um, and as an educator, and I've never full-time worked in a school, largely because part of my pedagogy around working with young people is around having a completely consensual space. You come or you go. And no one's gonna call the police or call your parents or get in trouble or get a fine or go to jail. You come if you want to, we hope that you stay. We build a container for you to help build and nurture and make better. Um, and if you don't wanna be here, you don't have to be here. So for me, it's like coming into this organization with a focus on the education system, uh, wasn't kind of a logical, wasn't kind of like a next step for me um, coming into this work. Uh, Cause I had on purpose actually avoided in school settings um, in my work over time. Cause I wanted to make sure that what we were doing actually fed the full kid, and that was in a that was in accountable relationship to the child, to the to the learner, to the young person, and to community, um, in a way that I think that we haven't figured out how to make school community learning communities, schools, classrooms accountable in that same way, right? So I think that for me, this feels really like an honor. Like I really get to be kind of in the arena um, and working to transform the education system, right, into I think what it must be in order to serve all of our young people because so many young people who look like me or you, or you, right, when we were younger, are the ones who get pushed out, are the ones who get unseen, are the ones who get punished for being who they are, um, regardless of their identities or whatever intersections. It's like these our young people aren't the ones who are um, seen or served or respected um, in schools. And so to be able to fight to build that system um, is is an incredible honor. I have so much to say right now. I have so much to say for so many reasons. The first is there has been, as Lisette alluded to earlier, this coordinated attack on education, this coordinated attack on curriculum, this coordinated attack on curriculum that teaches Black and brown and queer people about themselves and an intentional carving out of that information and access to that information in our schools at every level. How do you see the part you're playing in combating against that? I mean, schools help to recreate social order every generation. That's what they do. Regardless of who runs them, regardless of who's writing the curriculum, that's just what they do. They recreate social order. They create and then recreate social order. And so just to be super crystal clear, the vision that Glisten has for the social order of this country is that everyone belongs. How are we building a democracy big enough for all of us to fit? How are we building a society big enough for every single person to be who they are, to bring their gifts, 
to learn, to work together, to make this, you know, this place better. So that's our vision for the world. And so we are working to make sure that education systems, and I'll come back to systems in a minute, education systems create that, create that, right? Um, and, you know, the thing about systems is that you set it and forget it. And regardless of what you think you might want this year, it's going to be, the system is going to be creating and recreating the conditions it was, it was created to create. A lot of use that word a lot there, but you feel me. And just to go back to the idea of systems for a second, you know, we think about the education system as one one thing, right? Maybe like one pipeline that goes from like the White House all the way down to the you know the end of that pipeline is the is the school across the street that Lissette's looking at right now, right? Like top to bottom, it goes from like education secretary and president down to like teacher and kid and the seat. And to a certain extent, that is the case, right? There are kind of levels to this, to the game, um, as they say. Uh, there's the kind of federal guidance, there's the state policy, there's the local entity, right? That, um, that decides on various kind of rules and policy implementation, et cetera. And then there's the classroom, the teacher in the, in the school building. However, when we think about kind of one system, what we do, what we lose is in, in reality are the intricacies and nuances, right? That because of the way our government is set up, each state gets to decide what it teaches. Each locality gets to decide what it teaches. And so you might have people who are, you know, who understand the assignment of creating a world that's better for all of us. Um, but then you also have other people who understand their assignment, which is less democracy, less people um, in, included in who counts, um, and more power for those who already have it. And so when we're talking about transformation of an education system, we're actually, we're not talking about one system. We're talking about 16,000, right, school districts who have an autonomy that, you know, on one hand, we get it, like that's the country we live in, federalism is a thing. But on the other hand, right, it prevent it creates 16,000 front doors for, you know, foolishness to run in to, to run in and take control of. And so I think that if we have a vision for our country, if we have a vision for our children, then we must have a system that reflects that. And right now it's a hodgepodge um, at best. And I think it is deeply disorganized and causing a lot of harm um, in many cases. And I think a lot of opportunity for foolishness um, in other cases. I love it. I just wanna ground what you're saying too, because my sister's an educator. She's a vice principal in a district in Phoenix. And I think you know what you're saying is really, really important because, and we can learn a lot from schools in the sense that like, when emergencies happen, they become immediate resource hubs. During the pandemic, my sister's school was a vaccination spot, a testing center, uh, gave out food every day, provided um, resources that at the state level maybe were not available, right? And that's why these spaces are so important and that's why they're constantly underfunded, defunded and attacked. And so it's so important I, when I want people listening to this to understand the breadth that a, a school can, can carry when it comes to community care and how we, it's our responsibility to protect them and to take care of the kids that are entering their doors every day, right? Like it's just, it's essential to ensuring that we have inclusive, safe, like 
cities and communities. And so thank you for, for talking about the system levels in which schools operate. It's so important. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Like, since we're, this is, we're here, let's be here for a second, because I think yeah. part of what you're, part of what really um, sticks out to me are, are a couple of things. One, it's that the diffuse nature of our education system means that the successes, when we, when we experience successes, they are kept so local, right? We aren't able to scale the successes, right? Because we actually don't have a, we have a fragmented education system. When we, when you have deep failings, right? When you kind of starve the system at every turn, what you have is a wide scale failing, right? So what, what shows up is the result of underfunding. What shows up is the lack of educators uh, who, have, um, who have lasting relationships in community, who might be connected um, and invested in the success, both of the child, but also the, the community of children. And so I think what's so what's so difficult, and I think what we have learned in the many years since school desegregation and really this move to this kind of education system wide move for reform is really pushing down um, or kind of assigning the problems and failings and shortcomings of the system to individual kids and to their families or to their communities and not putting the um the outcomes, uh, the responsibility for the outcomes where they belong, which is in the system. Like if we have kids everywhere in the country, which we do, and we have schools everywhere in the country, which we do, then every school should be funded fully, equally. How about that, <laughs> right? Fully staffed, fully resourced. And I also wanna touch on your, on your point around how schools function as centers of the community, right? Um, when I got to Glisten, I started talking about schools, but also adding learning communities into that, uh, that sequence. Uh, and I did that because, and now we do that as an organization, because yes, learning happens at schools, um, at school buildings, right? Like the one that you're looking at, the one around the corner from me. And really what we have to understand is that learning happens in classrooms, often classrooms are in schools. However, there are classrooms in juvenile detention centers. There are classrooms in tribal on tribal lands. There are classrooms in lots of different places. And if we if we are really about this life, right? About like changing the world in this way, then we have to make sure that the circle we draw around learners, the circle we draw around learning includes every single room, every single interaction where learning is intended to happen. And that we make sure that when in that relationship, right, in that experience, that we are calling in the best of ourselves and the highest promise of what we need to accomplish. The other thing I'll just say real quick is that they are sent, schools are sent learning, right? School communities, learning communities are the center, if they're doing it right, are the center of communities, right? It's like where kids go during the day so their parents can do other stuff besides watch their kids, right? It's like work um, or other things. Right. It's also a place where young people can go and get meals, right, where they can go and eat, where they have access to social services, where if something is going wrong at home, there is another adult who's not their parent who can be brought into like, hey, I'm having a hard time. So when we're talking about schools, yeah, we're talking about reading, writing and arithmetic and a chair you sit in and a book that you read. We're also talking about a safety net, the first and most comprehensive safety net that any of our kids get. And the one system in our society that promises care. And so when we're talking about all these like uh, other outcomes that are happening or what needs to be fixed, 
what we should be clear about at the very basis is that something is going wrong in our school system and in our society when any kid is left out of that, is pushed out of that. Or we start having arguments about, well, we should educate these kids over here, but these kids are over here are the problem. Absolutely not. Every single kid everywhere is the remit, right? Is the job of this system. And then final point, sorry, I know I'm rambling a little bit. But you can keep going. There is no time limit on the knowledge, the nuggets, the jewels you are dropping today. Keep going. All right. So the final piece is that I often think about the coronavirus pandemic, right? Which, like, according to many people, like who are making policy and who are making various decisions, is over. Um, the pandemic and really in the pandemic, the, the height of the pandemic might be over, right? But the effects of it remain. Um, and so does the coronavirus, like PS. I say that because the COVID, I think, showed us a number of things, right? It showed us that not only do we not have a school system, we have 16,000, and like we not only do we not only do we not have a school system, we don't actually have a healthcare system, right? We've got hospitals that are doing things and like not actually talking to each other. We don't ha- actually have the systems that are set up to um to to support the people who who need them. And like we lost, I think I think it was early in the pandemic when something like 10% of young people and families who had been in school went missing in terms of like the count of like, where are these kids? We have no idea when they, when schools weren't open because at the height of the pandemic. The other thing I often think about is, you know, not only have we lost a mil- over a million people in this country alone to COVID, COVID deaths, seven out of 10 children whose parent or caregiver died due to, due to COVID are Black, Indigenous, or Latinx, right? 70% of children whose parents or caregivers died are our kids. And we're sending them to schools who like might not wanna teach them the real history of anything, might not wanna call them uh, with a name or with pronouns that help them feel respected or seen. We are sending them to schools that don't have funding for mental health supports. Are you kidding? It's like there's a way in which, you know, when we, again, you know, talk about kind of democracy at the top, but like, let's talk about care um, at the bottom of this. We have a duty to care for these kids and because those kids are going to be adults and they're going to be running things um, soon. And I think that if we don't make sure that they have care um, and are not harmed by the system, we're going to be recreating the bullying, the foolishness, the, the, the nihilistic kind of view right of this world that we had that's reigning supreme right now and that's fighting for power so everything you said plus one and it's there's easy ways i think to do that because when you said that it just it hit hard right and then i thought about mel who's a community member here who after the kids get out of school they go to the library next door and they have like painting activities with Mel because they're like a local artist and like get to spend time with someone who they may see themselves reflected back in right or not and learn how to how to use their hands to create something beautiful and I think there's all these ways we can help and support support the work of GLSEN support the youth that are in these classrooms and also there's a reality that we have to not just keep moving, 
Cause that was like, that's a start, that's a coper too, is like, how do we, we well, just got to keep moving. The pandemic's done. We're going to, there's another fight, you know, legislative sessions happening. There's all this other shit happening. And so you listing all that out was like, okay, we haven't sat with that, that reality. And then I think about the people who are doing the work on the ground that are not me. I'm not doing that care work in that way. And it's beautiful to see. And um, thank you for bringing those reminders. The Parent Advocate Podcast, like we really strive to help parents of like gender diverse, gender nonconforming trans kids to advocate for and on behalf of their children. Like you don't have to have all the answers, but like being a parent is is an action, much like being an, an ally. Like, you know, it's a verb, right? We got to show up. What are three things that you... When you think about the youth who are not supported, right, where parents are being difficult, what are three ways in which teachers can show up, especially in states where like, like Arizona, where teachers are often at like the center of the debate of whether they should be allowed to support marginalized youth in the classroom, like if, if there isn't a parent, like our podcast is for parents, but like, let's say there's a youth listening that's not supported at home, what could a teacher do for them? I mean, I think that the uh, I'm going to answer your question around teachers, but I'm going to expand it a little bit to include caring adults, right? Because it really, it, and, and hopefully a caring adult includes a parent, but doesn't always. And hopefully a caring adult includes a teacher, right? But also hopefully there are many adults who care about this young person in this young person's life that they can go to for advice, support, Un- helping to understand the world around them and what their options are. I think that the most important thing that a caring adult can do is is what a parent can do, what a parent should be doing, right? Is to see and regard the child in front of you. Listen to them deeply, right? Listen with your ears, li- listen with your all of your senses, with your eyes, take in what they are saying, but may, may, may not have words for, and also listen with your heart. You as an adult, have more tools, no more things likely um, around some stuff, right? You've, you've seen more, so you know more, right? Uh, you see more things, so you know more things. Um, listen with all of your senses to what the kid is saying. Be curious about what they are saying, what they are experiencing and what they're going through. Be curious about what they think would make it better. And then you work at the intersection of what you think would make it better and what they think would make it better, and you find a solution to ease their ease the situation they're going through, right? They're new here, right? They're probably under 18. They might be under, you know, 15. Like, they don't know what's happening necessarily. You've got more context. So listen, see them, listen to them, help them make meaning of what's happening, and help them make good decisions that are going to keep them safe, that are going to keep them whole, and that's that's going to connect them to their power. And I and I would say one other thing, and this is for everybody, but particularly for young people, none of us can change the world alone, right? If we if if anybody tells you that, it is I don't believe it's true, right? Um, history is always made by people who together take action and do a thing. And I think that we get really isolated, in the and and particularly in a moment like this. We can get really isolated. We go to, you know, our cell phones, we go to social media and we are fed, you know, scenes of life from all over the place, all over the world. And that can be very scary, can feel really different or maybe frighteningly similar to what you're going through. And it just gets really amplified, right? You kind of get lost in the cacophony and the shouts 
in the sounds and the pictures, but get with people who are going to help you stay connected to reality, connected to what you're going through and help you get through your reality with some kind of power and some kind of enjoyment, right? So um, so that's my advice. I don't know if that was three things, but that was, that was some stuff. That's great. And one of the things that keeps Lisette and I going is that we are hopeless optimists. So I want us to close on a positive note, if we can. So our last question for you today is, what is your hope for the future? And what would you like to tell students who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, um, there's a person who I really admire named Miriam Kaba, um, who says a thing, who said a thing that I love. And so now I say it often. And I want to make sure I give credit um, to, to her and her work, which is that hope is a discipline. Right. It's easy to have hope when things are going really good. It's easy to lose hope when things are bad. But like, actually, it's our job to remain hopeful. Um, Martin Luther King and like James Baldwin talk about love, like it not being this like soft or sentimental thing. It really is a discipline. We really have to commit to love, commit to hope. And so for me, that's kind of that's what I do. Even on the days I'm feeling low, actually, I'm feeling kind of low today because like the world is kind of getting to me. But like hope is a discipline. So do what you got to do. Take a break from your discipline, you know, catch your breath, drink some water, take a nap. But like come back to it and know that it's not just pie in the sky. It really is a like vision that you are shaping and building and advancing with other people to move to move it forward. The thing the thing that gives me hope, I think right now, particularly around young people, is also the thing that's super stressful right now <laughs> in the world, right? Which is that our systems, our institutions, um, whatever veil or patina there was on them that made them look all shiny and perfect is bit, has been stripped away, right? We see the flaws, we see the holes, we see the gaps in the systems that we have built around us. And, you know, there's one side of, a, of an argument that's happening right now in our culture that's saying, see, look at those failings, forget it. We have nothing. No one cares. Oh, well, you know, here's a gun and like, you know, um, et cetera. Like, let me feed you something ridiculous in the social media algorithm. And I think that that's one outcome, right, that I think can um, can happen, right? Us be us despairing, us losing hope. Um, but then I also think, again, Aries, uh, I feel like there's an opportunity to build something new, to imagine something different and to get to work with other people in both you know, maybe we fix the holes, but maybe we throw the whole thing away. Maybe we reimagine what is actually needed and necessary. Um, I'm old enough to have gone to the first U.S. social forum uh, here in the United States uh, back in, I guess it was like 2007. And I remember the uh, the T-shirts when they have, you know, we had like the T-shirts and the swag back then. I think I could afford like one T-shirt. I think I still have it somewhere. It's it's like a it's like a tube top at this point, right? I was like, <laughs> I had a different body back then. But on that T-shirt, it said, another world is possible. Another world is necessary and another, and another world is possible. Or another world is necessary and another U.S. is possible. And I think that that's like, that's right. Like, what is our vision for what is needed? Let's, and let's, let's take in for real, for real this time. There's stuff around us that's crumbling and that might not ever be built like it, like it should be or like we hope it would be. Maybe it was never built to succeed in the first place. Fine. What's needed? What do I need? What do you need? What the people who we know and love and are connected to need? And let's build that. And so, you know, as a person who's 41, whose knees don't work like they used to, right? <laughs> whose body is like, why am I so tired? It's just four o'clock. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to people who have a little bit more energy than me, who I can like help support and cheer on and give shelter to, 
right? And give um, uh, and provide respite for, um, and also be kind of like the elder, you know, the elder auntie, um, and, you know, like wag my finger a little bit because it's always a little bit fun, um, but encourage them um, and remind them who they are, who they come from, and what's possible. Oh, my goodness. Thank we you. love you. We absolutely love it's you. It's so you have me kikiing and giggling because I think about those creaky bones. Listen, you know? <laughs> what happened? I, the way I used to be out here. <laughs> I have a dream. I have like a TikTok dream for um some something y'all can do on TikTok like you Amara and William Cruz can do like um my so-called life reboot where you just talk about like pro tips on how to be a better person but like oh. that's the friend group I wanted oh. right like you know just talk about like pro tips on how to get through the classroom kids would not know what you're talking about but I would I'm we would be eating our popcorn and sipping our tea, watching this. Be like, it's on, y'all! Come on, they and are dialing our, dialing our rotary phones and <laughs> our letters. Just like, yes. How do we make equality happen? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know? yeah, no, listen. To have my bosses, my two bosses, be Wilson Cruz and Amara Jones, means that I'm in the right job. Um, yes. uh, I look to them both as people and as colleagues. Um, in so many ways, I look up to them in so many ways, and so it's a it is it is a pleasure and an honor to be in this work with them as my chair and um, and vice chair of the board. So um, I love that idea. I'll 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 float it past Wilson. Um, I will. I will. Let's see what let's see what happens. Amara's busy, but sometimes she has time, and when she has time, she can uh, she can be she can be silly. So she might be up for it. I love that, Sounds Melanie. Good. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. My heart is full. I know people are going to enjoy it. I can't wait till we release this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. So good being here with y'all. Thank you for asking me to join. Um, I'm so happy to be here. And um, I look forward to being in conversation with you all kind of on and offline. Um, and there's some good stuff I'm super excited about at Glisten that's like rolling out, particularly for to support educators to support parents, um, really both in the fight back at this kind of local level, right? School boards, et cetera. But also again with a vision for with a vision for the, the future that we need. That was an amazing interview. I'm so happy we had Melanie on our show today. But now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight-up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Marlon Wayans. On an episode of The Breakfast Club, Marlon Wayans shared his journey in affirming his transgender son. Well, Rainbow Child is about my, my daughter. I have a daughter that transitioned into a son. Um, my, my, my daughter, Amai, is now Kai. Truthful. And so I, yeah, True, and okay. so I talk about the transition, mm -hmm. not her transition, his, their transition, but my transition as a parent going from ignorance and denial to complete unconditional love and gotcha, acceptance. Gotcha, gotcha. And I think there's a lot of parents out there that need to have that message. And I know I'm dealing with it. On the show, he said, I talk about the transition, not their transition, but my transition as a parent going from ignorance and denial to complete and unconditional love and acceptance. He said, I think there's a lot of parents out there that need to have that message. 
I know I'm dealing with it. It was a very painful situation for me. The actor acknowledged that he's still working on pronouns. He also continued to say, I just want my kids to be free. I want them to be free and spirit free and free to be themselves. The more you know yourself and the more you can govern over yourself, the more you live in your truth, the happier your existence. What I love about Marlon's coming out and that moment of vulnerability, especially in the Black community, where men are being clowned for supporting their children, men's sexuality is being questioned because they're supporting their children, men's ability to navigate certain spaces is challenged or made more complicated because they're accepting their children. And notwithstanding all that difficulty, Marlon still came out and said, I support my son. I want my son to be happy. I want my son to be free. He was like, damn all the naysayers. I am speaking truth to power. And I'm looking forward to his special on Amazon Prime, where supposedly he really goes in on what it's like to come to terms with raising a transgender child, supporting a transgender child, and seeing pridefully your child living their truth. I love that. I can't wait to see the special. And this is why Marlon Wayans is our ally of the week. Congratulations to Marlon Wayans. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Moms for Liberty. The right-wing political group Moms for Liberty has removed two of its chapter chairs over their affiliation with the Proud Boys, a neo-fascist militant group that is even more right-wing. In Kentucky, for example, Moms for Liberty members, including county chapter chairs, were photographed with the Proud Boys. The images online show some members displaying gestures commonly associated with the white power symbol. And in Tennessee, Hamilton County Moms for Liberty chair Tanya Dodd was photographed sitting next to a Proud Boys member while wearing a Proud Boys shirt. The image, posted on a Moms for Liberty Facebook page is part of a trend of Proud Boys posing with Moms for Liberty chapters in official photos. Moms for Liberty claimed that the chapter leaders were removed because their actions didn't reflect the organization, saying that they are in no way affiliated with the Proud Boys and do not condone involvement with the organization. The reality is that this affiliation is exactly what Moms for Liberty is at their core, a hate group. And that is why Moms for Liberty is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Melanie Willingham Jaggers, for joining us today. And of course, I always got to give props to my co-host, Lisette Tujio, for holding me down. Thanks, Stephen. You know I got you. And of course, we couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you've got to do to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.